What's up guys, Swamp Dweller back here with another video, and yes, I'm gonna be on camera again, so hopefully you guys enjoy it, and it's not gonna be too weird. Um, today is gonna be an interesting case. Today we're covering the case of Paul Fugate, a missing park ranger. Paul Fugate was a park ranger for the Chiricahua National Monument Park in Arizona when he suddenly went missing on January 13th of 1980. Paul reportedly told a seasonal aide that he was going to take a hike, then went off in the direction of a trail he normally would take. Paul was last seen wearing an official National Park Service outfit with an NPS logo. However, Unfortunately, Paul would never return to his scheduled post, and over 42 years later, he is still missing. This is the longest-running missing persons case in the state of Arizona. It is also the oldest open cold case for a staff member of the MPS in absolutely all of its history. And at the time of recording this video, Paul remains to be the only National Park Service worker to go missing and never be accounted for again. Before we continue into the story of Paul Fugate, be sure to slap that like button like Ian just slapped my behind over the past few days, and be sure to subscribe if you're new as I upload new videos like this almost every single day in all things natural and supernatural. Now, let's jump into this sad and tragic story of Paul Fugate. Chapter 1. The Call On the morning of January 14, 1980, Dodie Fugate received a call. This call was from none other than Ted Scott, who happened to be the park superintendent at the time. She was then told on that phone call that Paul had gone missing. The Park Service haven't heard from him since yesterday and wondered if she had any idea where Paul could potentially be. And, as we all know, she unfortunately had no idea and hadn't seen him for just as long, if not longer, than the NPS. Her husband had been in the middle of a 10-day stretch, stationed at the park before returning home to Tucson, Arizona, roughly about 110 miles away. The Fugates were used to spending some time away from each other, as Paul's schedule was often like this, as it is for many National Park Service workers. They had been living in a long-distance marriage for about three years at this point, but Dodie hadn't expected to hear back from Paul until later in the day. She wasn't concerned prior to the phone call, but after, justifiably so, she became very uneasy. After fully comprehending the man's words, Dodie asked if she could come to the park to help look, but it was suggested to her that she stay home, just in case Paul Fugate would return home. The only real problem with this, though, is Paul wasn't scheduled to come home, um, not for quite some time. And Dodie knew he would never abandon his post. He loved his job. This was his life. She had feared the worst right from the jump, thinking something awful had happened. But still, nevertheless, she listened to the superintendent's advice and stayed home. After two days of silence, Dodie, of course, lost whatever little bit of patience she was able to muster from deep within inside her and drove all the way to the park anyway. She was going to help search for Paul with or without the NPS. Chapter 2 the missing person. Upon arrival, Dodie met up with the Cochise County Sheriff's Department and the National Park Service to go over the timeline they had put together thus far. On Sunday, January 13th, Paul Fugate was working his normal scheduled shift. He was currently working at the visitor center and took his scheduled break. This was somewhere around 2.30 p.m. 
The only other employee working the visitor center that day was a seasonal aide. Before taking his break, Paul told the aide that he was going to go for a walk. He left detailed instructions for everything the aide would need to know for a lockup and all that good stuff before you have to go home. Written in this list of instructions, Paul also said that if he didn't come back by 4.30, just to lock up without him. According to the aide, Paul walked towards an area known as the Faraway Ranch. He never returned from this hike. At the time, Faraway Ranch was 400 acres of newly acquired land to the Chiricahua National Monument Park. Paul was known to frequent the area quite a bit. A little bit later in this video, we'll get into some theories specifically surrounding the Faraway Ranch area. Believe me, it comes up a lot while researching this case, and I think it'll be important a little bit down the line. At this time, Paul was still being treated as a park ranger who was missing inside the park. And Faraway Ranch was only a small portion of the Chiricahua Park. The total area of the park is a considerable size, with incredibly difficult terrain, making the search require a very large group of different experts, officials, and various equipment to be able to not only trek this terrain, but be able to search or find anybody at all with all the nooks and crannies that are around in these areas. For several days on end, officials used all kinds of methods to try to find Paul including search and rescue helicopters, dogs, boots to the ground searchers, forensic teams, everything you could imagine. In addition, many of Paul's friends and family came out to aid the search as well. The initial search brought together tons of NPS, park rangers, border patrol agents, local police agents, and even the U.S. Forestry Service. Yet, with countless resources at their disposal, there was still not a single sign of Paul Fugate. Locationsunknown.org says, When a ranger on solo patrol in a remote area of a national park fails to return, the event rarely becomes what you would call a true disappearance. Search and rescue procedures being as good as they are, a ranger who is lost, stranded, or injured can reasonably expect to be rescued in a pretty short order, even if the missing person is no longer alive, remains are typically found within a few days, weeks, or months. If Paul had somehow been lost during his hike, or injured, he had been trained sufficiently to know what to do and to know how to get the attention of his colleagues who would undoubtedly be searching for him. If for some reason he couldn't get to a specific place, Cruz would have expected to find his body in a more extensive search. It wasn't very long before foul play was indeed suspected in this case. Investigators with the Cochise County Sheriff's Department were beginning to believe that Paul may have become a victim of a drug deal gone wrong. They even suggested at one point that the cartel might even be involved, but the NPS, who was leading this investigation, had an entirely different theory of their own. Chapter 3. The Runaway After several days, investigators truly did believe Paul Fugate was a missing person. Instead of combining the surrounding areas of Cochise County, the park superintendent and the NPS were ordered to continue searching the remainder of the park until every last acre had been searched. Apparently, officials wanted to be certain that Paul was not in the park to the best of their ability before going or searching anywhere else. And even with finding no trace of Paul, the National Park Service really failed to show any sort of urgency for this. Doty learned that investigators were looking into this whole matter with multiple running theories. And one theory that the NPS was particularly fond of, they were putting out this narrative that Paul was tired of his marriage, his job, and because of this, 
he just walked away. You know, just walked away, never to be heard from, seen from, and nothing like that ever again for 40 plus years. Makes a lot of sense. So, what was the basis for this theory? Paul had, to our knowledge and to the records I could find, never mentioned anything about being unhappy with his life. Well, apparently, while interviewing Park employees, including Paul's supervisor, the MPS learned that Paul was allegedly having an affair with one of the ex-employees at the park. An affair the MPS quote-unquote says was a secret. Now, like I said, this is just a theory, but there are several problems with this particular theory. Detectives were speculating that Paul had fallen in love with this new woman and was apparently unsure on how to leave his wife and so decided to just disappear with this mistress. Sounds somewhat plausible, right? There are several issues with this suggestive theory. While it might sound more interesting and make the story somewhat more enticing, the most important thing being that makes this not make a lot of sense is that Paul's affair was, like, not actually a secret. Dodie actually knew about Paul's mistress and actually gave her blessing. Now, that might seem strange to some of us, but we're not here to judge. On several occasions, the most recent being in 2020, in an interview with an investigative journalist, Delia D'Ambra, Dodie admitted the following. Paul had an affair with a young woman for probably two summers, and the infidelity part is kind of difficult because he asked me ahead of time if he could do it. She paused before continuing. Okay, um, and so it was not the case of I didn't know about it. Some of it made sense if you looked at it, because we were now separated. Paul was at the park. I was in Tucson. Perhaps this is probably why Dodie was so sure Paul hadn't just run away. If he was going to walk away from the marriage, he would likely just talk to her first. It seems like communication was fairly open between the two. Dodie has gone into more detail as to why they decided to split and end their marriage, but we won't go into that right now as that's not really relevant to what we're covering. But I can assure you it had nothing to do with any of them feeling trapped or like they wanted to start anew. It's clear through notes and first-hand knowledge from Dodie that Paul and Dodie truly did well care for each other at the end of the day, it just wasn't meant to be in certain aspects, at least not at the time. To go along with the MPS theory would mean that you subscribe to the idea that Paul left on his own accord, intentionally leaving everything behind for no real solidified reason that we can tell. Besides, there are plenty of other reasons that we could get into, but we won't, to why the runaway mistress thing doesn't really make a whole lot of sense either. The young woman in question had actually been staying in his cabin for that 10-day stretch. She was hiking in a completely separate area as Paul the day he went missing, which leads us to a little bit more of an obvious reason why the runaway theory falls a little flat if they ran away. Um, why, why didn't she go with him? Unlike Paul, she actually returned from her hike, again, which was in a completely different area of the park. This really should have been all the proof that authorities needed to move on with a different theory in the case, but um, apparently that's not entirely right sometimes. Still, for whatever reason, the MPS was pressing this theory fairly hard at the beginning. Maybe the young woman felt scorned, or maybe she knew Paul would never leave his wife for her. And maybe it was all too much, maybe she needed to just end it all. Maybe she had found some sort of way to make Paul disappear. Well, from the evidence we have, that's not likely. In fact, it's actually reported that she was the original person to even report Paul Fugate as missing in the first place. Additionally, she stayed with Dodie in Paul's cabin to fully assist in the search. So she was very cooperative. Why would somebody who is apparently a part of this be so cooperative and open? I don't know. She underwent intense interrogation by police officers, the NPS, even going as far to take polygraph tests and all other things in between. She would pass the polygraph test and everything else that they made her do with flying colors. Despite having like no evidence, like literally at all, that she was involved, 
they wouldn't stop making her one of the main suspects until a couple of months after his disappearance. Once Dodie and Paul's mistress were thoroughly investigated, Detective Craig Emanuel, a criminal investigator for the Cochise County Sheriff's Department at the time, made his cartel theory known to the public. He was urging the NPS to broaden their search. Many were actually agreeing with the detective that there could be more nefarious play at work here. There was no weight to the runaway theory, and all the other theories were kind of like throwing darts at the wall, if you want to be real. The National Park Service, for whatever reason, though, still believed the key to finding Paul Fugate was searching their own park grounds. And honestly, without the support of the MPS, the investigation really couldn't move forward. It was kind of like at a standstill. So, the Fugate family had to set up their own organizations to be able to start searching things, to be able to like look for clues outside of the park, because, you know, I understand Paul works at the park, but that doesn't mean he is still inside the park, especially if something like the cartel may be involved. These search parties that the Fugate family put together mainly consisted of volunteers who would walk the trails and a bit off the trail to see what they could see. They were distributing missing persons posters all over the county, and talking to people who lived in the surrounding town and areas, trying to get any sort of information they could about Paul. At one point, Dodie decided to bring in a psychic medium to try to help, and apparently, or I guess allegedly according to this psychic medium, Paul had seen something he shouldn't at the Faraway Ranch. Apparently, he had seen two men assaulting a woman. So, allegedly, he was taken and killed elsewhere and his body was dumped over the border. What's interesting about this is how Detective Emanuel had theorized something incredibly similar, except his idea was more based off the history of drug trafficking in the area. And one more thing to note, his theory hadn't been shared publicly quite yet. But still, of course, the MPS did not swiftly change their mind and really seemed to have their heels dug in the sand. And just when the investigation seemed to be hitting a wall, local police received a tip. This wasn't just any tip, though. This was allegedly an eyewitness testimony to exactly what happened to Paul Fugate. And apparently, there wouldn't just be one eyewitness testimony, there would be multiple. Chapter 4, Foul Play Shortly after the missing person posters of Paul Fugate were plastered all over the surrounding area, word of the missing ranger spread like wildfire. Suddenly, more people were coming from all directions with information about what potentially may have happened, including Dick Horton, a former employee of the park. The moment he learned of his co-worker's situation, he immediately called in to let them know he had seen Paul around 4.30 p.m. that day. He and his wife were driving toward the monument when Horton saw Paul. Apparently, he was slumped between two men in a pickup truck, and this pickup truck was barreling away from them at a very high speed. Mr. Horton's report of seeing the ranger in his uniform but not his glasses was the first lead in days that anybody had got of Paul that would potentially show that he was with other people, which would obviously lead to most of us thinking that he did not leave on his own accord. Detective Emanuel had pit Mr. Horton under some sort of uh, hypnosis or something along those lines. During the procedure, he began sweating and even tearing up at one point, saying Paul looked dejected and defeated maybe even sad when he saw him in that truck. He said the pickup was shiny, it, it was dark green, it had some sort of camper shell over it, and it had Arizona license plates. He guessed that the driver would probably be in his 30s, had a Kenny Rogers type beard, and was wearing a black, white, and red plaid shirt. The second one was wearing a green jacket, perhaps even the one Paul was wearing when he left the visitor center that day. Upon obtaining these details, a bolo was sent out. 
or a be on the lookout alert. They put out the vehicle's description, the men's description, everything they were wearing that day. Unfortunately though, this wasn't really a victory because the Bolo didn't produce any tips or any vehicles. There were other eyewitness reports as well. One of these witnesses wished to remain anonymous. They had apparently been working in a different part of that park that day and had apparently reported hearing signs and seeing signs of some sort of scuffle. These marks were located on a primitive road around the Fairway Ranch area. This includes drag marks, tire marks, and some marks that appeared to show a vehicle had spun out wildly. Another park ranger who had not been working that day, just to clarify, stated that they saw Paul later Sunday evening. They said he was just outside the park borders. This witness also said that they saw Paul slumped between two people in a truck. He was allegedly still wearing his NPS uniform, and he didn't seem to be wearing his glasses. As Doty and investigators learned the details of each one of these sightings, they grew increasingly alarmed because these sightings were coinciding with each other so well. They all had very similar details, if not exactly the same. Everybody who knew Paul knew one very important thing. He couldn't see absolutely anything without his glasses. And I'm sure there are many of you listening or watching this right now who also have the same problem, so you can definitely relate. Paul was essentially blind without his glasses. And something that really set off Dodie's alarm bells, if Paul had left with his friends or were going out for any reason, he would have brought a change of clothes at the very least. It was almost a well-known fact that Paul never wore his uniform outside of his work. One of the first things he would do is change after his shift. He would have always changed into his civvies, or his civilian clothing. If you recall, Paul left the visitor center sometime around 2.30 p.m., which is when the seasonal aide reported seeing him walking towards the Faraway Ranch area. Later that day, another employee, Dick Horton, saw Paul speeding away from the Faraway Ranch area in a truck with two others. This statement was followed with corroborating statements from an unnamed employee, who also reported they found tire marks and strange markings in the ground, very close to the ranch area Paul was said to be at. Then much later, another park ranger comes forward with more details corroborating what we had just said, saying that they saw him in a different area of the park just outside of the borders. The details between all of these reports are eerily similar and seem to paint a very potentially dark picture. Still, since there were no hits on the Bolo, most investigators were busy working on trying to fix or find out the timeline of events. They were still struggling to really find out when Paul had last been seen that day. They were also just now starting to accept the theory that Paul may have been taken away from the park and didn't leave on his own accord, potentially by two unidentified male suspects. Investigators decided to for whatever reason, I guess, to begin searching the park once again. While the Fugate family did their best to raise funds and other things for this investigation, they hosted their own search parties in and outside of the park as well. Shortly after moving the search, it became clear to Doty and Detective Emanuel that the NPS were no longer leaning on the foul play side of things. The sighting of the men in the truck was too fleeting, apparently, according to the NPS. And without solid new leads, they could not feasibly, in their minds, take this investigation any further. Doty, uh, understandably, found herself questioning the NPS once again on why they were handling this case so poorly. Was this really the best move of finding her husband? At this point, she was certain something bad had happened to Paul, and she was absolutely frustrated that nothing seemingly was being done to help her figure it out. It once again felt like the NPS were barking up the wrong tree. 
This time, their decision to once again search the park and not go outside of its borders created a major standstill in this case. This might be a decent time to bring up the history between the NPS and Paul Fugate himself, especially since it's not at all that positive. Now, while I don't really believe this, it has been speculated that the NPS may have had something to do with Paul Fugate's disappearance. Everything from the NPS knows what happened to Paul but covered it up to protect its reputation, to theories that someone got rid of him once and for all have been running rampant through my research. Now, these weren't police theories by any means, of course. Without evidence, these all seem fairly extreme. But it is important to understand that there was some sort of bad blood between the MPS and Paul Fugate. Even if the MPS didn't have any sort of direct hand in his disappearance, their internal feud could have initially affected the investigation into his disappearance, and as a result, the subsequent investigations might have not have been as thorough or as taken seriously as they should have been. Chapter 5 The History Hey everyone, it's Swamp Dweller from the future. Now, I'm editing this all together, and while I did record this entire video by myself, I was thinking, who would be a good friend to have help explain this particular part? And it popped in my head. My friend Aiden from the Lore Lodge covers things like this all the time, and I felt like he would be a great representative to make this part make more sense. So, if you're a fan of Missing 411 and just all-around strange things from the outdoors, definitely check out his channel in the description. Now, let's join Aiden for this next chapter. Various publications talk about Paul's slightly troubled relationship with the National Park Service. Most talk about how he was a button pusher who didn't like authority. For example, Jack Williams, superintendent of Navajo National Monument Park, once ridiculed the man for his anti-authority streak, his laziness, and his personal appearance. And he once wrote to Paul, if you want to look and live like a hippie, that is certainly your prerogative, but not here at Navajo National Monument. The superintendent was referring to Paul's facial hair and long ponytail. He disapproved, saying it was against policy, but at the time, it wasn't. There was nothing Williams could legally do to fire Paul, so he transferred him to a different park. In the early 70s, Paul's new place of employment was the very park he'd eventually go missing from, the Chiricahuas National Monument Park. Unfortunately for Paul, Chiricahuas would also take issue with his appearance. He had started wearing a mustache, which the Park Service cited as a violation of grooming standards, and he was fired less than a year after his arrival. The agency also alluded to his negative personal attitude and abuse of government equipment. However, it was later determined that this was a false claim. Paul was never involved in stealing or abusing any government equipment. A civil rights lawyer named Edward Morgan spent the next five years helping him to get his job back, and in 1976, Paul returned to work at Chiricahua National Monument. When Paul returned to work, he was no longer reporting to the same supervisor, and for the most part, it seemed like he was happy to be back. He never wanted any issues between himself and the National Park Service, but he was raised to stand up for himself, and quite frankly, he was taught not to take any shit. Though the legal battle absolutely drove a wedge between Paul and the National Park Service as a whole, he did get along with his coworkers. Despite what certain officials alluded to in interviews, most people who worked directly with Paul really liked him. He was social and known to hang out with the younger crowd of seasonal employees, getting stoned and going on full moon hikes like he was a naturalist guru or something. His issues all seemed to be around National Park Service upper management, not his fellow rangers. A coworker believed Paul's career was going nowhere because he knew the NPS had it out for him. Ultimately, Dodie felt the National Park Service had always wanted to believe her husband simply walked away, abandoning his post. She felt that they were simply trying to move on, and they wanted to do it without any responsibility or empathy. However, she didn't believe that the National Park Service was directly involved in Paul disappearing. 
only that they severely hampered the investigation in its early stages, focusing too much on salacious theories instead of more feasible ones. She even went so far as to call the National Park Service greedy and unprofessional when it came to the handling of her husband's disappearance. Honestly, when you look through the history of this case, you begin to realize Dodie might have been right. Chapter 6 The Bad Guys in the summer of 1980, sometime over six months after Paul had initially gone missing, an NPS investigator, Pat Hanley, believed Paul just ran away. He even accused the ranger of planning the whole thing just because he was anti-authoritarian, insinuating it was to cost the NPS thousands of dollars in manpower essentially inconveniencing them. But that's kind of a wild theory if you really think about the logic. Like, even if you hated your boss, would you really go that far and then never be heard from again? It always just kind of mind boggles me when you see these types of things because it's such a fruitless return. Like, what would be the point of Paul pretending to go missing and then literally stay missing for 42 years? As we've come to learn so far in this case, this was not even the first strange move the National Park Service made regarding this case. According to a 1981 New York Times article, the case was also reviewed by the director of the Western Region of the National Park Service. His name was Howard Chapman, and apparently he decided that Paul had voluntarily left his assignment. Mr. Fugate was finally dismissed a year after his disappearance. Apparently his wife was asked to return $6,900 paid to her, plus 11% interest. Now I don't know about you guys, but this is just sounding downright dirty for no reason. Later, the, the demand for repayment was changed to a lien on Paul Fugate's retirement fund, given that there was no evidence that the missing ranger was alive or dead. This move was entirely unnecessary. It resulted in a multi-year, I believe about four-year long legal battle between Paul Fugate's family and the MPS due to heavy amounts of public scrutiny, including the lawsuit from the Fugate family. By 1985, Director Chapman commissioned Pete Nye, one of the National Park Service's top criminal investigators. He was tasked with reviewing all of the files and really trying to determine if this was a real criminal case or just a park ranger who left his station and never came back. Meanwhile, the National Park Service, for whatever reason, refused to acknowledge Paul Fugate was likely dead. And among other things, this also meant that Dodie could not collect any sort of benefits. After a thorough review of all the witness statements, the search and rescue results, and the investigative notes, Ranger Pete Nye believed that investigation was deeply flawed from the start. Furthermore, new evidence that Craig Emanuel had presented in 1983 had been completely dismissed by the NPS director at the time. Towards the end of 1982, towards the end of 1982, a Manuel got a call. This call came from a police department in Racine, Wisconsin. Police reports show an unnamed man in his 20s, who we'll call Steve, he had been to a place where Cochise was buried. Cochise meaning Cochise County Sheriff's. The man was apparently, or allegedly, boasting about killing some sort of police officer, some sort of border patrol, or maybe even a national park employee while in Arizona. Now, while Paul obviously wasn't a cop or a border patrol agent, he did match something of some sort of authority. He was wearing a uniform, he worked for the park service. It might not be some sort of stretch that they might have thought he was somebody else. At the time of Fugate's disappearance, Steve had apparently been working in some sort of mechanic or auto body shop in Tucson, Arizona. I believe the place was called Auto World. Now, I might be wrong, but from the research, that seems to be the name. Detective Emanuel drove to the workplace to introduce himself. Apparently, he met the owner, Frank Youngquist. Now, this is where things get strange. 
Apparently, Emmanuel was super taken aback when he spoke to this guy, this uh, Youngquist fellow, because he apparently asked him how Dodie was doing, and it was never clear how they knew each other or if they knew each other. Then, according to Emmanuel, Frank said something that felt more like a taunt than a comment. Missing persons sure are hard to work. Now, why would you even make that comment? That's such a strange thing to say, right? And before we go any further, I do understand that these people could have learned about the case by watching the news or the papers or anything else the sort, but it is kind of strange to ask that question nonetheless. Apparently, after that remark, the interview got a bit more hostile. He ran me out of the garage, Emmanuel claims. He tried to subpoena the shop owner's records, but apparently Youngquist appealed to an assistant DA who quashed the detective's request. Now, make of that what you will. I don't know if that shows any sort of guilt or what, but it is another strange thing and another twist in this already twisting and winding case. The detective also questioned Steve in Wisconsin to ask him about his comments. But the man immediately recanted that he was a bullshitter, apparently, and was just speaking out of his ass, quote-unquote. Apparently, Emmanuel offered to fly the mechanic out to do some sort of polygraph test. But according to the report, Steve popped several pills before even taking the test. I believe it was some sort of sleeping pill he took, and he subsequently failed the test. He insisted it was only because so many people had come and asked him about this that he felt that he had to take some sort of responsibility even though he was actually not responsible. He was trying to play off like he was being gaslit in a sense. The inability to accept the results of the polygraph wasn't the only issue. The real problem for Detective Emanuel was that besides the initial confession, which was now recanted, no other evidence could at all connect Steve to any sort of crime. Nevertheless, in 1983, the detective told the press he expected at some point to charge someone for the foul play and disappearance of Paul Fugate. Apparently, in his words, it was in the not-so-distant future. This is around the time when Emmanuel would hand over his findings to the NPS, but as we all know now, no charges were ever brought forth. Steve's name was eventually leaked to the media, and he has remained silent and hidden, working at an unnamed auto body place. During Pete Nye's investigation, several NPS employees came forward to voice their frustrations with the NPS director at the time, stating that his handling of newly found evidence in 1983 was unprofessional and absolutely not okay. Nye agreed, despite there being no evidence. Mr. Fugate left on his own accord, the NPS, for some reason, and just kept on doubling down even when evidence suggested something completely different from their original theory. Even with clear-cut evidence of there being some sort of violent crime involved with Paul's status never changed with the NPS. He remained a runaway or just somebody who abandoned his post. So when Pete Nye finally completed his investigation, he concluded that Paul Fugate was not a missing person, but a deceased person whose body has not been yet located. The little evidence that did exist in this case pointed toward a possible abduction or some sort of foul play. Nothing at all pointed points to Paul Fugate abandoning his job and then just never coming back. These findings were finally accepted by the MPS and they would change their ruling from job abandonment to missing or presumed dead. As a result of this ruling, the Fugate family finally won their long, long-fought lawsuit. After five years of trying to avoid it, the MPS would be legally responsible for Paul Fugate's disappearance they would now have to remove their lien on Paul's retirement fund and pay his death benefits in full. When it comes to the MPS, it's more than likely that a lot of the troubles in the lawsuit side of things were mainly just from straight-up corporate greed. If they wanted Paul to disappear, it's unclear why. 
and it's really unclear why they would do so. At the time, he had already been back at his job for nearly four years, and there were no known issues between him and his direct supervisors. While there is a lot of evidence that the MPS somehow gained financially from Paul Fugate's disappearance by listing him as abandoned instead of missing or dead, it doesn't indicate any actual involvement in his presumed death. Chapter 7 The Real Bad Guys Which brings us back to Emmanuel's theory. Possibly the final theory, a drug deal gone bad. Paul had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. We discussed earlier that Detective Craig Emanuel holds this theory to this very day, and he's apparently not alone. Amazingly, the Cochise County Sheriff's Department has an entire task force just dedicated to this. It's called the Paul Fugate Task Force. Now picture this. What if Paul had intentionally or unintentionally walked into something illegal? And like I mentioned earlier, what if he had been mistaken as some sort of law enforcement due to his Ranger badge and lost his life because of it? Now that doesn't seem too far-fetched if you really look at the details we have. In 1980, a historic and undocumented route for Mexican farmers was just starting to be used by drug mules. And a 1981 New York Times article referred to a report that the law enforcement acknowledged that they knew that there were areas within 60 miles from Mexico that were commonly used for such drug trade. Now if this is the case, Paul's badge would have undoubtedly startled these perpetrators or individuals. And if they mistook him for law enforcement, well, they would have needed to dispose of him. It is possible entirely that they may have kidnapped or done something worse to him in order to spare their operation. Eventually, they would recognize that Paul did not carry any sort of weapon and that he would be basically defenseless against their demands. This could also explain why more than one eyewitness saw Paul in that truck with those two individuals that day. And wildly, it is in line with what the psychic media told Dodie when they had originally visited Faraway Ranch. Of course, we can't answer this definitively since Paul is unfortunately still missing, and to our knowledge, his body has never been found or recovered. What's particularly noteworthy about this theory, though, is that almost everybody who knew Paul or who was close to the case, his wife Dodie, his five siblings, local law enforcement, and we now even see the NPS's own special investigator, Ranger Pete Nye, all believe in the same theory. And furthermore, at the time of Paul's disappearance, the NPS actually had been getting an influx of reports dealing with alleged encounters with illegal marijuana growing operations all around the area. Apparently, sketchy individuals had been cited and had been reported. According to Doty, some of these reports were even made by Paul himself in the specific area of concern, Faraway Ranch. Chapter 8. Bad Juju there's just no real way to talk about Paul's case without talking about Faraway Ranch. The area was closed off for renovations and updates, meaning if you weren't a park employee, you could not go there and had no reason to be there. During the investigation and during many interviews over the years, Dodie did explain that Paul was aware of these people who were hanging around Faraway Ranch. Apparently, he would often travel to the ranch on his shifts to make sure nobody was around and to try to shoo off anybody who may be doing something sketchy. Paul wanted to keep an eye on things. He really liked the new area so much. He even asked his supervisor at one point if he could stay in a room in that area. However, his supervisor denied the request and later that week, Paul would subsequently go missing. Only a few days prior, Dodie had encouraged Paul to tell his supervisor about these undesired people hanging around the ranch. But apparently, and I'm not sure if he just didn't report it or if they just swept it under the rug, no report of this exists. 
the ranch has been referred to as the scene of the crime by many employees. After all, after Paul left the visitor center, it's believed he took a mile-long trail that follows a creek to the ranch. There's a lot of history at that ranch, and there's history still being made to this very day. The former owner, Lillian Riggs, died blind and partially deaf in 1977. She was 89 years old, and during the time of her ownership, the house was inhabited by a string of caretakers, including one who died after hemorrhaging on the couch. After Riggs' death, her home was turned into an epic museum, and apparently her close friend, Sally Clump, vanished from that same area later that year. There's bad juju in this spot if you believe that, an employee of Faraway France once said. Apparently this person was referring to an incident that happened in 2014 where a park service employee named Karen Gonzalez was assaulted and nearly murdered by an illegal drug smuggler. Then in 2015, two adults went missing under some very strange circumstances. And over two years time, the bodies were discovered in the surrounding forest. This brings us back to 2018 when Paul's case was unexpectedly reopened. Apparently, some human remains were found in the Chiricahua National Park, though it was later proven that these remains did not belong to Paul. The discovery did bring investigators back to the area. Chapter 9 The Conclusion Paul's widow Dodie never received any sort of peace or comfort over this. Her husband has never been brought home, not even his remains. Over 42 years later, the Fugate family still struggled with not knowing what happened to their loved one. They struggle with the mishandling of the case early on, and they are disheartened at the cost it takes to continue an investigation they believe should be at the top of the Park Service's list. Hoping to breathe any sort of new life into the case, in 2021, the family hired a new private investigator. Here's a part of a message from Dodie and the family's response on the matter. The detectives are concerned as to why so little has been done about a federal employee who vanished from federal land, in uniform, on duty, but they are also without the funds to talk to people who might know something but are scattered over the country. Tools to search places where Paul may have been buried are expensive. Now just let that sink in for a second. A federal employee goes missing on federal land wearing a federal uniform, and was on duty. To this day, Paul Fugate's case remains to be the longest-running cold case in National Park Service history. The NPS continues to increase the reward for Paul's recovery. Currently, it is $60,000, but for whatever reason, they haven't offered the Fugate family any extra assistance in their investigation and search for their family member. And furthermore, despite multiple attempts to get the FBI to investigate Paul's case, for some reason it remains to be a case that the FBI refuses to help with, stating that there is no sufficient evidence showing that the FBI should get involved or have any jurisdiction over this case. Paul's case was reopened a second time in 2021, but it appears nothing really new has been posted and I can't find what prompted this investigation to be reopened again. The details of Paul's case are strange and sad on their own, but there's that extra pain knowing that the family may never get to lay him to rest or know what happened to Paul ultimately. Over the years, the Fugate family has been given just enough information to confirm that foul play was more than likely the case here, but nothing has really led them to any closure and definitely nothing close enough to bring Paul home. So, unfortunately, in a case where there is no ending for me to give you, there's only so much one can really do. So, I guess with that, I can leave off this story with a message from Paul Fugate's family from their GoFundMe. You can read it in its entirety and check out and support their GoFundMe if you like. There will be a link in the description. But here's an excerpt I wanted to share. 
Doty and the Fugates have set up this GoFundMe page to ask people to help us fund the investigator's search for answers. Paul's family has been left in this hellish situation for many years. The pain of this situation never goes away. We appeal to people to help us, not so much to punish the people who killed him, but to find his body. If we can just find him and bring him home, that is all we ask. Chapter 10. Last Words. So what do you guys think happened to Paul Fugate? Did he willingly decide to leave his entire life behind? His wife and all things of significance? Did he somehow become lost on his hike to the ranch? Or was he a victim of foul play? possibly a run-in with the aforementioned cartel. There are so many theories surrounding Paul Fugate's disappearance, and so little evidence supporting any of them. The case has become some sort of an obsession for those involved. Some have been working this case since its fruition, and behind every theory there are five more theories. And honestly, none of them are entirely that far-fetched, which makes this even harder because all are worth exploring, and mostly to a painstakingly frustrating end. We mentioned in the beginning of this video, but it's worth stating again, Paul Fugate's case is the longest-running case in Arizona's history, not just National Park Service's history. And at the time of recording this, Paul remains to be the only park ranger who has ever gone missing on the job and has never been recovered. Let me know in the comments what you thought about this story, Swamp Folk. I'd love to get your feedback. It took a long time making this. We did a lot of research. Much love to my writers, Paige Turner and Amanda Jane, who helped me put this together. They are a lifesaver. Please show them some love in the comments as well. I'd love to know in the comments what theories you have. Are there theories that I didn't mention in this video that you have heard that I may not have heard before? Were there any things that you thought should have been included that we didn't include? Please let me know. I would love to be able to get better at these types of videos. If you're new to the swamp, be sure to hit that like button like it owes you money and be be sure to subscribe because I upload videos like this almost every single day on all things natural and supernatural. We're making our way to 300,000 subscribers. It would be amazing to hit that before 2023. Thank you guys so much for supporting the swamp. Don't forget to join me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Facebook, all the other social medias, and I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.